This is the Bema Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we press further into Revelation and this epic showdown and holy competition between Empire and Shalom. Ooh, good throwbacks there. Good throwbacks. Session one. Mm. And throwback to last week's episode. A little cultural context. Spoiler alert. Uh... It's not even really a throwback because the whole thing's been about Empire and Shalom. <laughs> this is true. It's a great point, Mr. Billings. Great point. All right. So in our previous discussion last week surrounding Revelation 8 and 9, we had a definite focus on the Greco-Roman culture, its impact on the interpretation of Revelation. And that means we ought to look at Revelation 10 with eyes turned toward the ancient Hebrew text. I don't do this to be cute. Or simply for the sake of redundancy, I do this because it's such a radically different way of reading Revelation than most of us were handed. It takes a redundant training, like we have to keep training these new hermeneutical neural pathways, if you will. It takes a redundant training to help us remember the lenses through which we ought to see apocalyptic literature, culture and text, text and culture, and text to what, Brent? To context. To context. So we turn our sights toward Revelation 10 with a desire to keep our eyes peeled for references to the Tanakh, the Hebrew scriptures, and particularly, what kind of books do you think, Brent? Apocalyptic. Apocalyptic books. Brent's been paying attention. Hope all of our listeners have. Go ahead, Brent. Give us some (laughs) Revelation chapter 10. That's very generous of you to say that. (laughs) Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun, and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll, which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven say, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, There will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. All right, now I know I'm not supposed to interrupt you, Brent, but... Uh, just to stop here and say, okay, apoc- apocalyptically, what is John trying to communicate to his his audience? That there is an imminent end. There is an imminent, this suffering, again, kind of like we mentioned last episode, There, there is a definite, there's a definition to this thing. There is an impending, imminent conclusion to what you are going through. Message of hope. Message of hope to his present day. Go ahead and keep going. I don't know who ever said that you're not supposed to interrupt me. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to just <laughs> let Brent do his thing. <laughs> 180 episodes. We got to interrupt. That's that's <laughs> what this so whole true. that's what this whole podcast. Why stop is. now? <laughs> then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. And speaking of that scroll, it says it was a little scroll. Yeah. What? <sighs> Is that is that like is that like a short prophet? Maybe. Well, we'll we'll, we'll dig into it. Okay. Maybe All if right. you remember, circle us back around and see if you have any perspective on that, Brent. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, "Take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey." Uh, 
I know that feeling all too well with eating dairy. Ooh. ooh. <laughs> uh, an unfortunate, um, an unfortunate connection. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. A little scroll intolerance there. That's, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so maybe you're starting to pick up on some of the references yourself, even before Marty starts talking as Brent's reading. Uh, did you hear anything that you might have heard before? Uh, I mean, do you want me to throw out some examples? Sure, let's, uh, you can play. So we've got uh, we've got rainbows. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, we've got... Uh, robed in a cloud, and then we've got legs like fiery pillars. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Um, little Exodus stuff there. We've got um, land and sea, uh-huh. roar of a lion, yep. seven thunders, thunder mm-hmm. in general, but also the number seven. Yep. I mean, we've got more trumpets. We got, uh, yep, lots of stuff. All right. Okay. So if you're sitting there listening to Brent, and you're like, oh man, I didn't pick up all that stuff. How'd Brent do that? Well, that's okay. Uh, Many of us were not taught the importance and relevance of that quote-unquote Old Testament. Old Testament. However, from this point on, we ought to remind ourselves frequently of the need to get into that front two-thirds of our Bibles. If we're ever going to understand our New Testament, especially Revelation, properly. But I digress. You may have noticed a few sprinkled references, as Brent did just a moment ago, pulled out of places like the book of Daniel. You may have noted uh, Ezekiel, possibly. John seems to be pulling language from the beginning of Ezekiel and the end of Daniel, both books being apocalyptic visions. John continues to be set on the goal of encouraging his readers to persevere and hope. But let's take a closer look at what Marty's talking about just to see it for ourselves. How about a couple of these callbacks to Ezekiel? Consider Ezekiel chapter 1. Brent? I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire, and that from there down, he looked like fire and brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down, and I heard the voice of one speaking. Sure sounds an awful like what we read in Revelation there, Brent. Yeah, absolutely. There's a ton of just... It's crazy when you have not been taught to do this, and then somebody just shows it to you in Ezekiel, and you're like, oh, golly, this is... This isn't the first time I'm reading this. This is all, like we read Revelation, we're like, this is such a crazy book. It's the first time this has ever been said. And then we realize this has been said already numerous times in the Old Testament. And I was connecting like rainbow to Noah and cloud and fire to the the wandering in the desert. Yep. So I didn't even realize we were talking about Ezekiel here. You're, You're working in the right direction. You are on a journey as are all of us, myself included. Later in the Revelation passage, uh, which we're going to read here in just a second, the footnotes help you out with the yes. uh, pointing you to Ezekiel 3, uh, yep. but they didn't help you out with this one. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll get to that in just a second. I would encourage you to read the larger portions surrounding these passages. It continues to add to the brilliant picture John is referring to. Nevertheless, we have an incredibly similar description of the visions here, complete with references to that rainbow in the clouds. Such a phrase would have certainly taken the Jewish reader, not only Brent, back to the story of Noah. And all this apocalyptic talk of seals and trumpets and earthquakes and destruction, is this a message of fear? 
With one reference, John is able to speak against those fears, remind people that God promised always to remember his covenant with the earth, and also remind them that their ancestors had heard this message before, right from the mouth of Ezekiel. So uh, let's do that whole Ezekiel 3. Consider, consider this one as well. And he said to me, son of man, eat what is before you eat this scroll. No way. <laughs> Indeed, there it is. Then go and speak to the people of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. Then he said to me, son of man, eat this scroll I am giving you and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. That's right. (laughs) There it is. It's right there. Oh my gosh. Uh, what more will we find here? He then said to me, son of man, go now to the people of Israel and speak my words to them. You are not being sent to a people of obscure speech and strange language, but to the people of Israel. Not to many peoples of obscure speech and strange language, whose words you cannot understand. Surely if I had sent you to them, they would have listened to you. But the people of Israel are not willing to listen to you, because they are not willing to listen to me. For all the Israelites are hardened and obstinate. But I will make you as unyielding and hardened as they are. I will make your forehead like the hardest stone, harder than flint. Do not be afraid of them, or terrified by them, though they are a rebellious people." All right, so again, you could keep reading Ezekiel 3 and continue to see parallels to Revelation. And again, please realize that this message of Revelation has, without a doubt, been heard before. John is not saying brand new things. He's saying things that have been said long before him and putting text to context. You can, ima- you can almost hear John communicating his intent. But when you start to understand the text to context, you can hear his plea and call and Revelation. In this 10th chapter, he inserts the Greek word palin into the text, a word meaning again or anew. You must prophesy again, or you must prophesy anew. It's as if John is communicating this message that he feels from God, a message that might sound like this. These people, John, need that encouragement. They need the reminder. This is a hard calling, and my words are sweet to the taste, but they are hard to hear and digest when you are sitting in the heat of oppression and fear. But go tell them, John. Tell them that I've never forgotten them. Tell them what they are fighting for and trying to preserve what they're doing. Tell them, John, it's worth it. Tell them to overcome. Tell them to run the race marked out for them. And we see this expansion uh, to the Gentiles originally for Ezekiel, it was, you're not going to people of obscure speech and strange language, but to the people of Israel. But in Revelation, it's, uh, you must prophesy again about many people's nations, languages, and kings. Absolutely. Something has happened in this mission of God. The world is changing. God's will and kingdom is moving forward. It's expanding into the Gentiles and beyond. All right, so we're going to keep pressing to Revelation 11, uh, one of those chapters where we really get to uh, put our growing knowledge of apocalyptic literature to work. It's full of numbers, it's full of images, references that make our heads spin. While it's typically, uh, it typically offers confusion, I think, for the general reader of Revelation 11, hopefully we have learned to ask a new set of questions to help us sort it out and put it back into its appropriate context. So, Brent, let's begin Revelation 11. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, Go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. 
and I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. All right. This setup is a repeat of the prophecy of Ezekiel. Check out chapters 40 through 42 of Ezekiel on your own time, and you will, again, just as Brent was a moment ago, blown away. It won't be the only direct reference to this major prophet. If this observation is beginning to sound like a broken record, it's because you're now starting to notice what should be apparent as we read apocalyptic literature. (laughs) I keep saying that in every episode. It's just so important because it's not your knee-jerk reaction. I know I've said that before. I really want to help us see this and be reminded appropriately of its significance. John is trying to pull his readers, especially his Jewish readers, back to the message of Ezekiel and let them be encouraged by a prophet who has come before. But then John moves toward a conversation about two witnesses. I can remember where this conversation took me as a young adolescent who was enamored by the Left Behind series, a series we will not be hyperlinking in our show notes. (laughs) Theories point toward these fantastical ideas of two individuals who will play a special part in the end times. The problem is not only are such quick assumptions and conclusions ignorant of authorial intent, they also ignore the context of the passage. Any Jew in the first century who spoke of two witnesses would have immediately thought of two witnesses dominant in Jewish history. What do you think they are, Brent? Moses and Elijah. Oh, baby, Brent got it. You might remember one study. Where did we talk about Moses and Elijah's witnesses? Uh, Mountain of Transfiguration. You got it. Yep. This idea of two authorities bearing witness to the coming of a new kingdom was far from a new idea. Is this relevant to our interpretation of Revelation? I would certainly think so. But then the passage goes on to give us even more detail. Brent, give us some more thoughts here from Revelation. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. Uh, Which is... Definitely reminiscent of the story of Elijah. Oh, you think? Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. (laughs) Thank you, Brent. You're stealing my point. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, Just read the Bible. All right. (laughs) (laughs) It's overwhelming how applicable it is. I can't help it. Uh, This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. Uh, and they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Oh my goodness. We can't even we can't even do this anymore. We're having too much fun. Immediately Brett notices. I have in my notes I notice, but I can now say, looking away from my notes, Brett notices the reference to those two witnesses having the power to shut up the sky so that no rain would fall. Who is it that did such a thing, Brent? Elijah. Elijah. And if you remember from our teaching, who was Elijah quoting when he bound God to his text? He was quoting Moses Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. It would seem that John really is working with this idea after all. But not only this, John gave us more details about these two witnesses. In reference to them, John says that they are the two olive trees and the two lampstands. We've spoken before about how olive trees and lampstands symbolize the community of God's people. One of the things John keeps doing is pulling out visions of two, where would you expect there to be one? Instead of there being 12 elders, that would be, you would expect 12 elders, right? Right. But there were how many? 24. 24, which was convenient for cultural context. 
but uh, I, I personally believe it alludes to the other half of God's people, if you will. We have noted all throughout our study of the New Testament that the dominant issue being dealt with in the early church is the inclusion of who, Brent? The Gentiles. The Gentiles. I believe John throws in multiple references of a doubled communal number to point out that God's people includes both Jews and Gentiles. There are 24 elders, not just 12. There are two olive trees, not just one. There are two lampstands. This also means that John is inferring that the unified body of Christ, Jew and Gentile together, serve as God's witnesses in the world. They have the power beyond what they know, power to bring life or destruction. Their testimony lived out as a people will be as powerful as the testimony of Moses and Elijah. Go ahead and read me some more revelation, Brent. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts, because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud with their en- while their enemies looked on. Seems like somebody else went up to heaven in the cloud. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. It seems as though their witness and testimony is useless because they appear to be destroyed, killed, and left for dead. Fitting to the context of the original hearers and readers, do you suppose, in Revelation? Mm-hmm. Do you think they felt like their witness was probably all for naught? Right. Absolutely. But this is the world they live in, and John is encouraging them to overcome. He says that later. After three and a half days, exactly half of what, Brent? Seven. Seven. A very Jewish and apocalyptic way of saying a significant time, but not forever. There's an end. It's half of a complete time. So soon. They are resurrected and taken to God in the clouds. Rather than being a futuristic recipe for rapture, this is another reference to Elijah. My point is this. It is not reasonable to believe that the early readers of Revelation saw this as a futuristic rendering of things to come, but instead an obvious play to things of the past. They realized the message of encouragement John was sending their way. How about you read us some more and finish this up, Brent? The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who were seated on their thrones before God, fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, And within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a severe hailstorm. And with that, John brings us back to the great games. 
where the two kingdoms are locked in what seems to be an endless struggle and competition. Who will win? John the Baptist announced to us that the kingdom of God had arrived. Jesus picked up the same banner, telling us that the kingdom was among us. In fact, John says we do find ourselves in that era where the two kingdoms coexist. But there is coming a time when those kingdoms will be put to the test and judgment will be rendered. John says that time has now come. Will God's people stand sure and persevere? This is the question of John's apocalyptic letter of Revelation. A good place to stop for now, Mr. Brent. Sounds good. Uh, if you have any questions, if you want to get in touch with us, go to, ba- go to BayamonDiscipleship.com. So thanks for joining us on the Bayamon Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon with more Revelation. Revelation.